Hey, would you do me a huge favor right now and just welcome all of those who are joining us online, live, however they are coming in. We are thankful for them. And then now just one more time, I hope you stored it up, but even louder for all of those at the Eunice Correctional Facility, our brothers and sisters in Christ down there. We love you guys. Thank you for listening. Thank you for letting us serve you and being a part of our services. You can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. As you're turning there, I do want to uh, just put the bug in your ear, not literally, but proverbially. I thought that was funny when we lived in north central Arkansas, but a bug in your ear joke is not funny in Eunice. It's not a funny joke. Um, but we want to we wanna just remind you, we have about 40-something people serve, signed up for Serve Day, uh, Saturday, April 28th. We've got several projects that have already come in. And if you know of a, of a project of an individual that, that really can't do it themselves and they really need our help, you can call our office, you can message us, and if you can paint, clean, um, mow, build, fix, stand, move your hand, drive, serve in any form or, or fashion, if you could be available that Saturday, we're going to have a good time, we're going to do some things for our community that the only thing we want to see back from it is know that God led us to do it and, uh, and, and open the door to any ministry opportunities that he may want to, to hand us through that. Also, the, the second step of next steps is today. So if you've been through the first step um, and you need to make that second step up, you want to come and join us after service today. I, I had a text message that was just a glimpse of what we're having to eat. So I will be preaching quickly in second service to get down to the student center for next steps. We are in a series called The Invitation. And, uh, and I wrote this on Thursday because it really was. But, but, but in essence, spring is, it was in the air. Okay, spring, Thursday spring was in the air. Thursday, man, it was, it was beautiful. It was 65 degrees and sunny. It was just about 10 degrees uh, warmer than what heaven's going to be, you know, and it was a, just a good day all around. Spring was in the air, and, and often whenever we think of spring being in the air, we think, well, well, love is in the air, right? Those little songbirds, they get up earlier than everybody else and chase one another around. The, the, the doves are on the power lines <laughs> at everybody that walks by, you know, and, and, and they're tempting me because they're just right there, and all I can think is how good they would taste with eggs, it's just a struggle. The struggle is real. They're right there. But, but spring and, and love is in the air. Megan and I actually began dating in April of 2004, the spring of, of 2004. It's really a beautiful connection that we made. She had just two weeks previously broken up with her former boyfriend and fiance. And uh, I was actually in a relationship, beginning a relationship with somebody else, but we began to hang out and we just ditched both of them. Um, actually, I had been kind of working with her for a little while, but she was with her boyfriend at the time. And I figured, look, if I can break them up, they don't need to be together anyway. And so that's how, that's how our, our relationship, our relationship began. But, uh, but thankfully, fortunately, our engagement um, was a little bit more uh, beautiful, a little bit better than our introduction. And I've shared our engagement before, but I guess our engagement was, was so impactful to her that ever since then, she has sensed this anointing, if you will, maybe a call of the Lord to make sure that all the guys that I know 
are able to produce as good of a of an engagement as I produced. And so if they're close to me, if she knows them, she wants them to call her so she can help them. She wants to help them set it up and plan it out. And they never do what she said, but man, she has all these great ideas. But then there was this one, we had a former student who was engaged uh, just a, a couple of years back. They're, they've been married since and, and they're about to have their first baby, so cool. Um, when you begin to see the people that you ministered to kind of come into their own life, he, he, uh, he is a youth pastor of a, of a church in uh, South Dallas, and, and they run 150 to 200 kids any given Wednesday night. I mean, just, just really doing an incredible work for the kingdom of God. But he had planned with his friends, he got this two-seater bicycle, and, and he put her on the back, and they went riding down the road, and they were just kind of out for this Saturday. And, and he set up stops along the way, all along the way with these, these different activities or things for them to do. And, and ultimately, he would take her into a park, and then he rounded the curb, and they had set up this big pallet wall with all the lights, kind of like what we have back here. But it was, it was just in the middle of the park, and, and all their friends were out there, and he'd set up like this picnic thing for her. And, and everybody was around, and he asked her to marry him, and she said no. No, I'm kidding. She said yes. I'm sorry. I just couldn't. I was like, it would just hit me right there. She said yes, right? She, she answered yes to the proposal, and they became engaged. Engaged. What, what he really did, besides just asking her to marry him, when, when you get engaged or when you make that proposal, what you're really doing is asking for the life of the other individual. You're asking to partner with them in this thing that we call life from that day forward. And when, and when you respond yes, when you receive that proposal or that invitation, then you are, are in course saying, yes, I, I, will, I will partner with you in this life and I also accept everything that you have to offer. We are now going to do this together. So Romans chapter 6 verse 4, we see Paul kind of writing about what this felt like when he accepted the proposal of Jesus. When he decided, you know what, I'm going to accept the life that you have for me, and I'm going to give you my life in return. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Now, unlike the proposal of Jesus's, uh, unlike the proposal uh, that we have, Jesus's invitation. It's not a question. You know, when, when I proposed to Megan, I, I, I got down on a knee and I held her hand and I said, will you marry me? And she said, really? Okay, I was like, that's not what I was expecting. But yeah, I'm, seriously, this is not a really big drawn out joke that I just, yeah, for real, please. <laughs> Could you answer in front of all these people now? You know, but Jesus didn't do that. Jesus Actually, he gave a command. He didn't give a request. He gave a requirement. He said, if you believe in me, then I want you to come and follow me. If you want the life that I have for you, and you want the benefit of the life that I've already purchased, then I want you to come 
and follow me. This is not a request. It's a, it's a command. And when we accept the life that He gives us, we discover that it's an eternal life. It's a life that goes way beyond the temporary and into eternity. It's a life that's more than ordinary, it's extraordinary. It's more than just a life that we now survive. It's a life that now we get to thrive in. It's a life of abundance, of more and better, more than we can ask, think, or imagine. It's the life that we get to discover when we say yes to Jesus. When we say yes to the death, the burial, the baptism, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a better life. But just to avoid sounding too much like a TV preacher all in one session today, a better life does not mean an easier life. And that's where a lot of us get confused. Well, I gave my life to Jesus. The preacher said he was just going to clean it all up and everything was going to get better. And we do believe that things will get better. That God has a way and God has a will and God has a purpose for you and your family and your future. But a better life does not always mean an easier life. It means in the midst of trial and even in the midst of temptation, you can still be fulfilled. In the midst of the valley of the shadow of darkness, you can still have a hope that's bigger than your present circumstance. You can be more productive, not just tempor temporarily successful, but eternally productive. That you would hand your children more than just finances that they would blow. You will hand them a legacy that they could establish their very hope upon, which is the life that God purchased for you and for them. It's more productive. It's even more peaceful. It's more joyous. And as you enter into this journey and you accept the invitation, even in the midst of the trial, even in the midst of the difficulty, you begin to discover a perseverance that you didn't even know was inside of you. You begin to discover character that God wanted to bring to the surface. But at times, you learned how to callous down below. And God wants to shave the top layer off. So that everything that he put inside of you can rise back up again. It all begins when we accept the invitation. I have three points today of how we accept the invitation. Number one, we commit to the command. We commit to the command. Well, what was the command? Well, I told you, come and, and follow me. That was, did you know that Jesus never led one person in the sinner's prayer? I don't think there's anything wrong with a sinner's prayer. But that's our way of helping people pray and asking Jesus to take their lives and make them His. It's our way of helping people confess Jesus and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead. But Jesus never one time prayed a sinner's prayer with anybody that became a disciple. He simply would walk up and He would say, come and follow me. And in the midst of that, He's having this conversation with some of his disciples. In verse 22 of Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus makes this incredible prophecy. 
He says, the son of man must suffer many terrible things. Well, man, Jesus, I sure am glad that we've left everything that we had and, and haven't seen our families for a while. I'm really glad that I quit my job, man, to follow you. And now you tell me this now? I, I, I received what you told, I did what you told me to do. You said, come and follow me and, and you would give me life and give it in abundance. And now you're telling me that you're about to suffer something? Well, if, if I'm following you and you're about to suffer something, then that means I'm about to suffer it too. And I don't know that I'm okay with that. Hashtag Judas. That's what happened. That's why Judas had such a problem with Jesus. Because he was in this place where he had forsaken everything to follow the Messiah that he believed was the Messiah. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts going in this direction that he didn't expect. But before we judge Judas, let's look at Jesus and see if we've done the same thing to him. We look and we receive and, and we commit. Man, we receive salvation. We begin to serve. We begin to go through next steps. We receive water baptism. And we're excited about it until Jesus says, now the Son of Man has to suffer some things. And all of a sudden, the life that we thought was supposed to be better becomes more difficult than we realized. And, all, and we wonder, man, was God even really in this? That's what Judas did. The Son of Man must suffer many terrible things. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. Now, I'm telling you guys, he's talking right to Judas. I guarantee you he's looking at him when he's having this conversation. He will be killed. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. Jesus prophesied his own resurrection and he pulled it off. He prophesied it, and he pulled it off. I'm telling you, look, I'll just concede. And I've said this before, but I just want to make sure that everybody understands. If you prophesy your own death and resurrection, I will let you pastor this church. Okay? I, I am officially done as the lead pastor of this church because I had someone in the house that prophesied their own death and resurrection, and then pulled it off. Um, Tertullian, the third century philosopher who became a Christian, he wrote about the resurrection of Jesus, and he said it in this way, it is certain because it is impossible. It is certain because it is impossible. Some others would begin to, uh, I guess, reword what Tertullian said, and, and they became believers because of the absurdity of Christianity. The absurdity of Christianity is what caused them to become believers. Now, what's a, in, in, in this passage, you're going to see what the absurdity or what the upside-down effect of Christianity actually was. Verse 23, he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower... You must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Here's the absurdity, verse 24. It's the paradox of God's provision. Verse 24, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, then you will save it. To deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus means that, God, 
I am giving you my life. I am losing my life to you. And the paradox, the absurdity is that when you lose your life in Jesus' name, you actually just begin to really live your life. It's not until you lose it that you actually begin to truly live it. Now, in the Bible Belt, specifically in in some of the more excitable movements, I've found that everybody likes to talk about the power of God, but nobody likes to talk about the suffering predominantly. I would even say it this way. Predominantly, everyone wants to talk about being resurrected, but nobody wants to talk about dying. Unfortunately, the only way to be resurrected is being willing to die in the first place. You cannot resurrect something that has not been put to death. Everybody wants a resurrection, but nobody is willing. Nobody wants to die. It was, remember that in Christ, it was death that was the last enemy. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, based on our Easter message, that it was 1 Corinthians 15, the proof was the resurrection. He didn't try to prove the resurrection. He used the resurrection as the proof of his existence. So from earth's perspective, death is the end, right? That's what makes funerals seem so final. And I had one pastor, I heard a guy say one time, man, I'd rather do Three funerals than one wedding. I thought, that's the stupidest thing I have ever heard in my life. But really, it shouldn't, I shouldn't have that view towards it. Because the reason that I feel like that is because I have that same perspective that, that funerals feel so final. From earth's perspective, a funeral or death is the end. It's the finality of life. But from heaven's perspective, death is the goal. Death is the objective. From the kingdom's perspective, God is saying, when you lay down your life and lose your life, it is then and only then that I can truly raise it back up again. When you go to the grave in this life, it is only then that you will actually come into my presence fully, receive the fullness of knowledge, and inherit everything that I created you to have. It's not until you're willing to die that I can do the resurrection peace and in the earth death is final but from heaven's perspective death is the final goal it's the objective and it is only in death that we truly inherit what we were created to have from the very beginning which is eternal life so I say let's obey now let's commit to the command to lay down our life now, to lose our life now, so that God can begin the resurrection process while we're still here. Number one, commit to the command. Number two, embrace uncertainty. Embrace uncertainty. Don't avoid uncertainty. Embrace it. Predominantly as a human race, we don't just 
love change. I don't know if you've noticed that. Unless you're a three-year-old boy and you love to change every five minutes. And you love to change all kinds of things. You love to change things that, that your parents weren't even sure could be changed by a three-year-old boy. You just like change. It's just fun. It's exciting because you don't like for things to stay the same because that's boring. It's not exciting. I've been stuck here all day. I got to change something. I got to throw a rock through a window. I got to poke this. I got to take that gum and hit it with a stick. I mean, whatever. It's just randomly doing things to just, you just kind of mix it up a little bit. I remember a story of a teenager um, that we had at, at, a, at a church. His coaches called him Mix It Up. And well, I was like, dude, what's up with that, man? Why do you call this kid Mix It Up? And they said, because that's all he does every practice. If we're running a drill and he's supposed to go through this hole, he's going to juke and jive and run around the outside. And we'll be like, hey, what are you doing? I need you to run through this hole. We're trying to practice this. And he's like, hey, I'm just trying to mix it up. Just trying to mix it up, coach. Just want to mix it up. When did we stop embracing uncertainty? When did we become so sophisticated and intelligent in our lives that we no longer made ourselves likened unto a child before the God of all of creation? At what point in our hearts did we decide, okay, God, that's enough change. That's enough stretching. That's enough pursuing more. I've arrived at this place and I'm perfectly content with it. We avoid uncertainty like the plague. Man, if it's uncomfortable, I have heard people say this. If it's uncomfortable, like if it doesn't feel right, then it must not be God. <laughs> that is actually the exact opposite of what God wants in us. God is trying to get us to stretch out of our comfort zone, to become, un, to become uncomfortable. Because it's only when we are willing to become uncomfortable that He is able to send the comforter into our lives and reveal Himself in a bigger and a better way. Don't avoid uncertainty. Embrace it. What if we stopped asking God to just make everything okay? What if we stopped asking God to reduce the uncertainty? What if we asked God, instead of changing our situation, we asked Him to just change us? What if we asked God to increase the uncertainty because with the uncertainty comes an opportunity to see Him move in a way that we would have never seen Him move? What if we ask Him to increase the uncertainty in our lives so that we will begin to lean on Him in a way that we would not have been willing or even needed to lean on Him if the uncertainty had not increased? What if we ask Him to increase the uncertainty so that we see some opportunity on the other side of the uncertainty that we would have never even considered potential because God brought them to the surface and showed them to us and then God moves in and the only way that we turn the opportunity into something productive is because of the wonder and the majesty, the awe and the ability of God Almighty. What if we stopped asking God for what we want when we want it? And how we wanted it. What if, instead of making plans for God, we began pursuing Him and discovering what He has planned for us? 
to embrace the uncertainty, the unimaginable, unfathomable, uncomfortable will of Almighty God. It's very similar to the newlywed feeling, growing cold. At first, you've seen them. Oh, they just, they just make you sick. Just eat your dinner with your own fork. You're not going to share that food in seven months. And she's going to be mad at you for not doing it. You're setting precedent, son. You need to stop now. It's what's happening. But we have this, this feeling of excitement and engaging in this new phase of life. When we receive salvation, man, we get freedom from our shame and our guilt and our past. We receive the salvation. And then just like as we have to spend, get to spend every day with that person. <laughs> I caught it before you did. You can't hold me accountable. You get to spend every day with that person you become so familiar with that person and you get into such a routine that you become more comfortable with that person and ultimately you just kind of settle in. But when you settle in, what you find seven to ten years later is that you actually stopped growing. And as you settled in, you made the decision to begin the path to separation. And that's what we do with Jesus. When we stop embracing the uncertainty, when we stop living the life of stretching and achieving more than we imagine on our own, more than we could plan for ourselves, when we stop dreaming and stop praying for vision, we move into an area of settling that leads to the beginning of our separation. I want to encourage you today in your marriage, in your relationships, but certainly in your walk with Jesus. Relight the fire. Put another log on. What it took to win them, win them, it will take to keep them. The excitement that you had when you began this journey, you can rediscover and endure all the way to the end. And when you get there, you will be able to look at your life as Paul was able to look at his and say, to live is Christ and to die, it's not final, it's gain. It's the embracing of the uncertainty of the next phase. There is a next phase in every single one of you. It is the uncertain and desperate times that calls us to seek Him desperately. And according to Scripture, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for someone who will truly love Him, who will seek Him desperately, who will achieve His will with a reckless abandonment. So instead of asking God to relieve those uncertain times, Embrace those uncertain times and pursue Him in a way that you were not pursuing Him formerly. I got one more story. 1 Samuel chapter 14. David has 
come to the surface, but not yet become king. Saul and his army are out doing what Saul was anointed to do. Saul, the first king of Israel, is conquering the land. He is winning the battles in the first 13 chapters of Samuel. He has his army out. They're conquering the enemy. And his son, Jonathan, is at his side all along the way. And everybody is singing the praises of Saul, the conquering king. But something happens in chapter 13 that leads to this story in chapter 14. Verse 1, one day, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come on, let's go over to where the Philistines have their outpost. Let's go over to the enemy. But Jonathan did not tell his father what he was doing. Because verse 2, meanwhile, Saul and his 600 men were camped on the outskirts of Gibeah around the pomegranate tree at Migron. Now verse 4, we see that in order to get there, to reach the Philistine outpost, Jonathan had to go down between two rocky cliffs that were called Bozes and Sinai. So, what I want to ask you this morning is, at what point did Saul perceive it to be okay to settle in and become comfortable under the pomegranate tree? At what point did Saul decide that it was God's will for him to have an army of 600 warriors and his son, and yet he should no longer pursue the enemy, he should no longer conquer the territory, he should no longer lead his people, he should just sit under the comfort of the tree that God created. I want you to notice something before we go any further today. That when we, as men and women of God, in our lifetime, decide to settle in and become comfortable before God called us to, we pass on the responsibility of what should, we should have accomplished to the next generation. When we become comfortable in our sin, when we become comfortable in our success, when we become comfortable in our situation, we take the responsibility that God gave us to be productive and press on, and we pass it down to our sons and our daughters, and we say, I don't care about it anymore. It's not for me to worry about anymore. You deal with it. And that's what happened to Jonathan. Israel was in a stalemate. Life had become too safe, too predictable, too mundane in the camp of Israel. But Jonathan, the son, saw more. There was a victory to be won. There was a destiny to be achieved. There was an enemy to be conquered. Now, Jonathan knows he's supposed to move forward, but he's got to face two things 
It's amazing that the king didn't realize that he needed to move forward. The leader did not realize that he needed to move forward. But the ones under his influence had a bigger vision than what he had. Anytime that you decide you no longer want to move forward, you no longer want to press on, you no, want to, you no longer want to lead the way that God created you to lead, then God will take the vision that he had for you and he will pass it along and you will watch somebody else do what God had anointed you to do because you decided to settle in and get comfortable before he was ready for you to. So Jonathan had the vision that God actually wanted Paul to have. But in order to accomplish the vision, Jonathan had to do two things. He had to climb a cliff and he had to overcome an enemy. The cliff is a representation of Jonathan's personal battle. I want you to understand that when you decide to stop accomplishing what God has called you to accomplish, you pass on a personal battle to the next generation that you could have overcome for them and they wouldn't have had to face. Jonathan had to face the personal battle of his own fear, of his own anxiety, possibly of his own pride or laziness, his lack of inspiration, maybe even his own sin, guilt, or shame. He was going to have to climb the cliff that his father decided to not climb for him. And I just look at this story and I think, not me, not my boy, not my babies. God's put too much in me for me not to pass down the right things. If they're going to face personal battles, it's not going to be because I handed it to them. If they're going to have struggles, it's going to be because of their own sinful nature, not the sinful nature of their daddy. We're going to deal with this thing. I'm going to climb the cliff so that you don't have to. I'm going to face the generational things that we've all faced so that you get to live in a manner that those things are nothing more than a testimony for you of what my daddy got to overcome in the name of Jesus. The Philistines were not there to lose. Did I tell you that the enemy is not set up for a loss based on his own perspective. He's there to win. He's there to beat you. He's there to take your house, to take your babies. He is here to possess your soul and your spirit. He has set up shop in a place that he's not even supposed to be in. He's up on top of a hill. He's overlooking you. But the reason that He's overlooking you is because you have stopped short of God's will for your life. You're sitting at the bottom under a pomegranate tree when Jesus really wants to take you to the top over the enemy. But when you settle in, there's nothing to do except forgive the enemy more credit than he's worth. The Philistines were there to win. We can't just save ourselves Listen, this is, this is the heresy of American Christianity that we think that we're just supposed to save ourselves and stop there. That we're just supposed to receive salvation and inherit eternal life. And that's good enough for me and my house. I'm telling you, no today. There's a pomegranate tree with your name on it and it was planted by the enemy to stop you from rising to the occasion and fighting the battles that your family was going to have to fight if you don't do it for them. The Philistines were there. Jonathan had an enemy. He didn't just have a personal battle. He had an enemy. 
We don't just have a personal battle. We have an enemy. And the war had been waged against Jonathan. The enemy was waiting. And God needed somebody to engage in the battle. I'm asking you today. Are you going to avoid uncertainty? Are you going to engage in the battle and embrace the uncertainty? Uncertainty raises the anticipation for us to see an act of God. Embracing the uncertainty raises the anticipation for us to see an act of God. And finally, we can receive God's reward. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6. Let's go across to the outpost of those pagans. Tired of sitting here. Not going to watch somebody else do what I've been anointed to accomplish. Not just going to sit here. I know my daddy just sat here. I know my granddaddy just sat here. I know all the priests are just sitting here. The 600 warriors and all the leaders are just sitting here. But there is a victory to be won. I'm tired of sitting here. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, I love this. Watch this. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Maybe if I get off of my backside, perhaps the Lord will help us for nothing can hinder the Lord. Do you remember when you believed that? Do you remember when the first time, when you really as a child, you believed that change and uncertainty was okay, that it was exciting, that there was a, a future and a destiny out there for you to accomplish, that a, a purpose had been planned for you and all you had to do was pursue Jesus in order to discover it? Perhaps the Lord will help us for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether he has many warriors or only a few. He doesn't need a lot. He just needs a one. <laughs> so ad lib this story just a little bit. Verse 7, the armor bearer is like, <laughs> whatever you say, bro. Like, I'm here for you, man. You go down, I'm going down with you. Man, what a friend. You need one of those. Well, I don't have one. Okay, quit whining and be that one for somebody else. Hey, my bad. Verse 8 and 9, Jonathan says, look, here's what we're going to do. If, if they say, stay where you are, then that's what we're going to do. If they see us and they're like, whoa, stay where you are, then we'll stay put. But if they say, come on, we're going to go fight them. If they call us forward, then that's what we're going to do. If they say come up and fight, that's what's going to happen. So they crawl up the cliff. They face their own personal battle. Jonathan and his armor bearer, two guys, versus all the Philistines encamped in an army. They get up to the top, and the Philistines begin to mock them just like Goliath is going to mock David later on. The Philistines begin to mock them, and they don't tell them. They made the worst mistake of the day. They didn't say, hey, stay right there. Take it easy. They said, look, the Israelites are crawling out of their hole. I, I want to be the church where the enemy looks over Eunice and says, look, 
All these people are crawling out of their hole. What do they think they're doing? Don't they know their place? They are climbing the cliffs of their own personal battle. They're not allowing me to keep them where I had them. They're coming out of their holes because when the enemy begins to be challenged, all he knows how to do is make fun and pick and and, and try to discourage or distract or divide. But they'd already settled that. The Philistines said, look, they're coming out of their holes. He said, and then they say, why don't you come up here and we're going to teach you a lesson you'll never forget. Jonathan goes, that's it. They said it. They used to, you remember I said, if we say come up and fight, then we was going to go up. They didn't tell us to stay here. They said, come get some. And so we, let's go. We mean you, bro. And he's like, okay. Ah! And they crawl up and they go face the entire army. And they fit, they, two guys killed 20 Philistines on a half acre of land by themselves. And then all of a sudden, panic struck the Philistines. The ground began to shake. It was a panic sent by God. It was an earthquake sent by God. Because when you operate in the perhaps, God begins to operate in the provision. Israel came back together and pursued the Philistines. Here's what happened. When Jacob, when Jonathan and his armor bearer were up there fighting an entire army by themselves, his daddy's sitting down under the pomegranate tree going, hey, what was that? What's that noise? What's going on? Count all the soldiers. Who's not here? They're like, your son's gone. He's like, get everybody together. Let's get up. Let's go. Let's save my son. Well, now he has a purpose. In the King James in verse 6, it says, perhaps the Lord will move. It's the same word that we find in verse 12 that says, come on, the Lord will help. In verse 6, they say, perhaps the Lord will move on our behalf. In verse 12, when the Philistines call him to fight, he says, come on, the Lord will help. See, if you will just go on the perhaps, then you will see God provide but you've got to move on the perhaps in order to see Him provide. What's your perhaps faith today? What's your perhaps the Lord will move in this? Perhaps the Lord will help in this. Perhaps the Lord has one more miracle, one more invitation, one more act of forgiveness. Perhaps the Lord will move on my son or daughter. Perhaps the Lord will move on my finance. Perhaps the Lord will move on the time that I thought I had lost. Perhaps the Lord will move on the opportunity that I thought was gone. Perhaps the Lord will move in this mountain that I'm facing that seems bigger than anything that I can get through, much less climb up and face an enemy over. Perhaps the Lord will move. And when you move on the perhaps the Lord, then you will see God move in a way that you could have only imagined greater and more powerfully, more wonderfully than you could have ever expected. And then final, this is the final passage we're going to pray. Verse 20 through 21. Watch what else happens when you move on perhaps faith. You don't just win the victory for yourself. Verse 21. Even the Hebrews who had previously gone over to the Philistine army revolted and joined in with Saul. Listen, there are some people lost, dying, trapped in bondage by the enemy 
waiting for just one person to move on the perhaps God will help. And when you move on the perhaps God, when you achieve the victory in Jesus' name, all the people that were trapped by the enemy that you just overcame will see what you did and they will want to be a part of what God is doing in and through you. They won't be able to stay in the camp of the enemy any longer. Jonathan and the rest of the Israelites, watch this, likewise, the men of Israel who were hiding in the hill country of Ephraim joined the chase when they saw the Philistines running away. Verse 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day. How did he save them? Because one guy said, perhaps God. Perhaps God. Perhaps God. Jesus, right now, I pray that you would help us to hear from you, to be obedient to you, to respond and receive everything that you have for us. If you're in the room today and I lost you on the first command, that first committing to the command of Jesus to come and follow me. I'm telling you today that that invitation remains open. And if you're in the room today and you are not currently following Jesus, you are not confident in your salvation. But today you want to make that right. You'd say, Chris, I need Jesus. I need him to forgive my sin. I need him to forgive my past. I need him to forgive my lack of faith. I need to receive salvation today. If I'm talking to you, whether this decision is for the first time or for the first time in a long time, if that was for you and you want to make it right and you want us to pray for you today, you want to be included in the prayer that we're going to pray. I just want you to lift your hand right where you are. Say, Pastor, that's me. Thank you. Thank you. Hands going up all over. Come on, don't be left out. I see you. I see you. Thank you. Thank you. I need to receive Jesus today. I need to receive forgiveness today. I need to get back on track. I need to recommit. I need to commit. Anybody else? Pastor, I just want to be included in that prayer. Let me ask a second question. This is everybody in the house. If you're in the room today and this message was stirring some things up inside of you to stop seeing uncertainty as an obstacle and begin to see uncertainty as an opportunity. If in your heart today God is stirring you right where you sit and you say, I need to become more like Jonathan because I've been a little too much like Saul. Perhaps the Lord will move on my behalf. If that's for you today, I want you to lift your hand right where you are and say, Pastor, that's me. Holy Spirit, that's me. I, I confess, I admit it. I need some more perhaps faith in my life. Anybody else? Thank you. Hands all over the room. Anybody else? I want you to right where you are. I just want you to pray this prayer with me. If you lifted your hand for salvation, 
We believe whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you lifted your hand because you know that you need to become more like Jonathan because you have settled in and become too much like Saul, I want you to pray this prayer with me today, right now with all of your heart. Jesus, forgive me where I fall short. Forgive me for being comfortable with things that you never meant for me. Take my life. Make it yours. Place in me the desires that you have. Help me to follow you with all of my heart. I say yes to your command. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, hey, could you stand this morning? Can we just praise Jesus one more time in the house today? Hey, if you're thankful for those who just received salvation, could you let them know how excited you are for them and how grateful you are for the fact that they would be able, willing to lift their hand in front of 200 people and say, yeah, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to receive his salvation today. Hey, don't forget to sign up for the things that we've got going on. VBS coming up in June. Serve Day here in just a couple of weeks. Water baptism the day after serve day. If you have not been water baptized, we want you to do that. I'm going to pray for you just like I do every week. I'm going to pray for you like I do over my children every night, like I do over myself every morning. God help us. So if you will, just open up your hands like I'm handing you a present. Let me bless you today and we'll get out of here. Jesus, I love you. Lord, I thank you for every person in this place. I pray that you would bless us and keep us. Make your face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. But would you lift up your countenance upon your people? Help us to receive your peace and everything that comes with it. Would you anoint us to accomplish your will and to walk in your ways? May everything that we put our hands to be blessed. And God, from this day forward, may we never fear uncertainty. May we never see it as an obstacle alone, but as an opportunity to see you do something that we haven't even considered yet. And when we operate and we obey, Lord, I pray that it wouldn't just set us free, but it would set many others the enemy has held captive, that people would come back out of hiding and get back on track. Use us to do your will in Jesus' name. God bless you.